DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us on this Monday, just a week or so before Christmas. So maybe you're out in your car right now looking for Christmas presents, listening to us on the radio. Uh, Jim, do you have a list do you want to share with any listeners who might want to buy for you? Yeah, yeah, I want to drop some very, very heavy hints. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you're going to. Uh, that's Jim Galloway, of course. He's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He writes in the Wednesday and Sunday papers, and you read his comments, his blogs, along with blogs of his colleagues in the Political Insider, which is part of Politically Georgia at myajc.com. The red convertible, not the black one, <laughs> the red one. All right. <laughs> right across from you is Andy Miller. He is the founder and editor of Georgia Health News. And uh, Andy, we're especially glad. I kind of appreciated your making a late agreement to appear, since we're going to talk a lot about this uh, decision by the federal judge in Texas. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here, Bill. Um, we also have with us uh, Eric Tannenblatt. He is a longtime uh, leader in Republican Party politics, both here in Georgia, uh, nationally, very close, as you know by now, to the Bush family. We had a show in which uh, Eric offered us some really wonderful comments about George H.W. Bush. Uh, also a big supporter of Mitt Romney on his way to the U.S. Senate. You going to be up there when he gets sworn in? I will be up there. Of course you will. <laughs> All right. Welcome. Stacey Evans is back with us. She, of course, was a member of the Georgia House, a Democrat, ran for governor in the Georgia Democratic primary, lost to Stacey Abrams, and you've just joined a new law firm. I have. I'm a new partner at Wargo and French. Wargo and French. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And next to you? Um, we have uh, Heath Garrett. It's Monday. Heath uh, comes in here on Monday afternoons. Uh, he, too, is a Republican strategist, and uh, we're really glad to have you here, Heath. It's great to be here on a Monday. So, you know, um, we got a lot to talk about, but I do think I want to start with some national breaking news, Heath. Uh, yes. Lamar Alexander, Tennessee senator. He was governor of Tennessee. He was a candidate for president in 88, 92. I kind of get that confused a Secretary little bit. Secretary of Education. And Secretary, Secretary of Education just announced he will not run for re-election, so there's going to be an open seat, a Republican open seat in Tennessee in 2020. Yeah, that's big news. Uh, Senator Alexander obviously is a huge mm. force in the United States Senate, has had a great career. Uh, I was just with Senator Isaacson at lunch today. They are very, very good friends, have been very close on education reform. It's a sad day for for Senator Isaacson to see him announce his retirement. Was, was Alexander facing any kind of a primary challenge? Uh, I don't think it has really manifested itself. I think, you know, he just kind of made the statement that, he, and I think we kind of had all seen this coming, that there's just a time, it's time to leave. And he wanted to go out uh, kind of on top, if you will, uh, having had a great career. But the, in the modern era of primary politics, there's no question he could have had a challenge. And uh, he's a powerful committee chairman, too, of an important committee, the health education yep. and labor intentions. Yes. You know what else he is, Eric? He's, he's like a Johnny Isaacson, one of those guys up there who's been willing to compromise. So we're losing uh, a U.S. senator who was certainly a Republican partisan, but actually worked across the aisle at times. And, and there, there's going to be a whole lineup of potential successors, some really strong candidates, including the former or current governor, Haslam, who I guess finishes out his term in a couple of weeks. I have very fond memories of following Lamar Alexander across Iowa during his primary uh, presidential primary race uh, in his uh, uh, the plaid shirt, plaid shirt, plaid shirt, shirt. sitting yeah. down at whatever piano presented itself to <laughs> play, play for the assembled crowds and uh, and give his pitch for why he should be the next president of the United States. So a really interesting man, and I wanted to just take a minute to uh, mention him. Okay, the big, big story, Jim, that we know broke this weekend is the uh, ruling by a federal judge in Texas that essentially wipes out, at least for now, the ruling stands for now that Obamacare is now unconstitutional and illegal. 
It, now, now with, with caveats here, the, the judge did not issue any kind of injunction, no injunction. to go with this. And a, a statement came out of the White House after the celebra- celebratory tweet from uh, President Trump. There was a statement from the White House saying the status quo remains and will remain uh, as long as, as the uh, decision is, is under appeal. So, so let's first talk, uh, Andy, about what the... What the judge is, what why, what he based his ruling on, and then we'll get into the larger question of the political implications. Well, there was a, a lawsuit filed by 20 attorneys general, including Chris Carr of Georgia. They're all Republicans, and essentially they said that this law is unconstitutional because uh, they, they focused, the judge focused on the fact that the tax penalty for not having insurance has gone away. Congress essentially took, removed it. In, at the end of 2017. So the judge said that piece of the Affordable Care Act is, is so essential to the Affordable Care Act that because there is no longer a tax penalty for not having insurance, that the law now, the Affordable Care Act, is unconstitutional. All, all facets of it. All facets of it. Not just that right. piece of it, but everything. Stacey, if, the, oh, there was a great uh, 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 deal of commentary by, by legal scholars over the weekend who said they believe the judge far exceeded uh, what this lawsuit asked him to do. And, and there's questions as to exactly why he felt he had to uh, nullify the entire law. I'm waiting for all the Republican outrage about the judicial activism that we saw coming out of the federal court in Texas. Um, and I think it will be short-lived uh, because I do think that the numbers in the Supreme Court hold. Um, my worry is, is what Jim hinted at at the beginning. There was no injunction, but I worry that this has discouraged people from signing up uh, under the Affordable Care Act. And the deadline was the 15th. And, and I, I think that's really sad. There are real people, real consequences, real health care needs that are likely going to go unmet because of this decision. Well, well uh, go, I'll answer that one quickly. Uh, this happened, there was 24 hours left in the sign-up, so it's it's unlikely that it had a statistically significant effect on it, but it could have that effect going forward, particularly given the kind of mischaracterization by the media of what happened. Well, wait, um, wait, what, what was the mischaracterization? I want to make sure I understand. Well, it's not clear from the headlines and from all the topics that at first, particularly over the first 24 hours, that the judge had not invalidated the law as it currently exists, right? There was confusion in the reporting, and only if you read down and are kind of a legal scholar, did you understand in the first 12 to 24 hours of the cycle that the judge left the law in place? And that's why the White House— While it goes through the appeals process. While it goes through the judicial process. And the only thing I want to add to what Andy said is, let's remember, the uh, 27 attorneys generals had already brought suit, had gone all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court over the Affordable Care Act, and it was Justice Roberts who created what many scholars believe to be a legal fiction in saving it, right? The argument has been all along that the the individual— mandate was unconstitutional because it was the first time the federal government mandated that the U.S. citizen have to purchase something that's never happened before. And so Justice Roberts created this legal fiction that, well, it's really a tax and therefore it's constitutional. So he invited the challenge once the tax was removed by the Congress. That's why this federal judge and these these AGs actually did. The federal government didn't ask for it to be held unconstitutional, but the state AGs did. So they're actually following what the Supreme Court said about the act earlier, and that's why I think it actually has a pretty good chance of you want to jump in? being held up. Well, yeah, and I was talking to the former Attorney General, Sam Olins, this morning, and I asked uh, his take on it, and he said because this is now going to be appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, it probably won't be heard until June of 2020, which then puts a lot of pressure now on the Congress you know, to, to figure out what yeah. they're going to do. And, yeah. and we're going to talk in a minute about just how that uh, is going <laughs> to unfold press. But, Andy, uh, nevertheless, it is certainly true that, that there was no injunction, so the law does remi- remain in effect for the time being. But uh, if Affordable Care... You know, we think of Affordable Care Act as perhaps not being significant to a majority of Americans, but the reality is there are many provisions of this law that touch more lives than we realize. Well, directly, it it provides health care to 20 million people, which is a substantial number, obviously. Uh, But it also has protections for people with pre-existing conditions. That is wildly popular among the American public, and it was a huge issue during the recent political campaign. 
So it, it, there's pre-existing conditions. Right. There's insurance through through your uh, parents to the age of 26. 26 Another right. uh, tremendously popular uh, uh, piece of the legislation. And coverage for substance abuse treatment, which is huge. And that was a big promise from Republicans that apparently they're not that concerned about keeping because President Trump is celebrating this as a wonderful thing for America. It's, it's, it's so crass. That's very political. <laughs> well, well, but but let's let's if we can just step back and, and and kind of appreciate what's exactly is going on. You have a a, a large group of Repu- Republican attorney gen- attorneys general from from the various states, all state level. They've challenged a federal law, and now are putting the onus on the federal system to come up with a replacement for what. If Heath, if you're right, they're they're demanding the the, the Congress come up with a Republican Congress at this point, come up with a replacement for what they've taken apart. That's that's a, and 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 you and I and everyone at this table knows how functional Congress is right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so my question, I, I guess my question is for Heath and and Eric, if you're if you're going to this is the Colin Powell. Rule. If you're if you're going to break it, don't you have an obligation to fix it? And what happens when when it doesn't get fixed? Well, first of all, there's no, the, the the entire Congress, Republican Congress, asked for this, right? So it's not like the AGs were doing this independent. Republicans have said from the beginning in the debates, right, that this was an unconstitutional law. So this is nothing sure. new, okay. right? right. No, number one, and number two, there's absolute uh, confidence that the federal government and the states will be able to fix this. Well, I, that's an interesting uh, statement. So, Eric, uh, 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 first of all, um, when you you I. I'd really find it hard to imagine that Republicans across the country today uh, are sharing Donald Trump's enthusiasm over what happened in that federal courtroom because they just went through an election in which pre-existing conditions was such a huge issue that I would think that these attorneys general have really put, and that includes our own Chris Carr, have really put Republicans on the spot as the election cycle ramps up again toward 2020. Well, I mean, it was a, an issue in the last election cycle, but the Republicans were pretty clear that, you know, they didn't want to get, or, or, you know, get rid of the pre-existing right. conditions. And now, you know, now we're going to have not just a Republican Congress, we're going to have a split Congress. And so, you know, maybe this is going to force the two parties to have to work together to come to to some resolution. Well, it's interesting. The Republicans had it all to themselves. And and if they thought it was unconstitutional, if they wanted pre-existing conditions, but they didn't want something else, they had a couple of years to do that without even having to work with the Democrats. So I find it really interesting that now it's going to be easier because we're going to have Republicans and Democrats to write the bill when Republicans, if, if they wanted a better bill, they could have done it. We were not standing in the way. We couldn't. There were 70-plus attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act in the United States Congress. All of them failed, including the one where John McCain significantly put a thumbs down to the repeal attempt. Uh, I think the questions that Republicans have to answer is, what is the plan? Uh, Is it going to cover as many people for the same amount of money, essentially? And how are you going to get it through a divided Congress? Jim, don't you imagine— that we are now, as journalists, going to be ramping up the conversation that, you know, Republicans, I don't believe, really have been excited about having, which is, what are you going to do to replace the Affordable yeah, Care there's, Act? There, there, there's that, but also on the Democratic side, you've you've had, I mean, ever since the, uh, November 6th, you've had these musings among Democrats that maybe we should go to single payer. I think that now is is really taken off the table because now you're going to put uh, House Democrats in, in a more defensive position on preserving what they've got. All right, so Stacey, um, we know that there is most likely going to be an effort by some in the legislature to uh, expand Medicaid in Georgia. And we've been talking about it for ever since the Affordable Care Act was passed initially and offered states the opportunity to expand Medicaid under ACA. Um, And we, for a while, saw Speaker Ralston starting to suggest maybe we should look at that. Uh, Maybe we got to at least explore it a bit. Isn't this judge's ruling, whether he's slapped an injunction on it or not, going to make 
legislators, both Republicans and Democrats, wary of moving forward? In his interview with the speaker last week, uh, Jim Galloway uh, has the speaker quoted as saying, I don't want to expand Medicaid with federal money because I don't trust that money will be there. Doesn't that make this doesn't this ruling make that more questionable? Uh, I, I hope that Georgia will not use this as an excuse to not to move forward, if that's a I leaves you a lot of negatives in that sentence. But I was really disheartened um, after the 2016 election when the Republican leadership decided, well, now we think it might be repealed, so we're not going to do anything about it. I hope they don't use this as another excuse to kick it down the can because we have responsibility for Georgia. And regardless of what's going on in D.C., we have got to take responsibility for the hundreds of thousands of Georgians that are uninsured. So I hope that Governor Kemp and Speaker Ralston and others, Lieutenant Governor uh, Duncan, will will work together and get this done. Because this is where I think bipartisanship in Georgia is a good way to force a result as opposed to in D.C. But, but Andy, expanding Medicaid relies on uh, n- nine out of ten dollars uh, will come from the federal government. And if legislators feel they can't rely on that revenue stream, Aren't they going to pull back from wanting to expand whatever intentions they might have had? Haven't they gone out the window? Well, we've gotten some indications that the Republicans want to do something in terms of coverage on health care. And whether it takes the form of a waiver uh, that would get federal approval, I know that the Trump administration is, is encouraging states to do something. So I think we'll see something early on in terms of an indication from the Kemp administration in terms of whether they're going to pursue this. That's right. I, and Bill, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that Governor Kemp, he has a great policy team, beginning with Tom Price, who's one of the experts on this in the country. Tom had a replacement the year that the ACA passed. It was 80 percent of what's in the Affordable Care Act, and it was a fraction of the cost, right, because it targeted the 40 million, 50 million of uninsured at that time. And what, they, what people forget, what the ACA did is it didn't just try to insure the uninsured, it tried to transform the entire health care network of the United States of America and went too far and is extremely expensive. So uh, there are plenty of experts, health care experts, to believe the state of Georgia can cover the uninsured for uh, 80 cents on the dollar and not even need the nine out of 10 dollars coming from the federal government to do it because our population is unique and different. We're not California. We're not New York. We're not as expensive. So what I like is that this, this judicial ruling is causing the states to do what they should have been doing already, which is experimenting. And if the Trump administration will let them do it, I think the solutions are going to come from the states, not necessarily the federal government. I agree with Heath, and I think there's every indication coming out of the new administration that they're they're really looking at it. I, I do want to pick up on something Jim said when he mentioned single payer. You know, the, the Democrats, like it or not, are now in control of the House. And, you know, it's one thing when you're in the minority, it's a lot easier to pitch than catch. And they need to now take some responsibility working with the Republicans in the in the U.S. Senate. And perhaps we can come to some kind of uh, conclusion. Wait, Jim, I don't quite understand the perspective that Eric just offered us. Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act. They had a plan that they put into place. Now, perhaps their biggest problem was they did it as, as by, by it was with, all within their own party. That's exactly right. what I was going to say. Nevertheless, the law exists. It's the Republican attorneys general that pushed this lawsuit, which brings us to the position we're in right now. And it's been, uh, it's been the position of Republicans. This law shouldn't exist anyhow. Why is the onus suddenly on Democrats? Well, I I didn't say it's all on Democrats. I said it's on both of them. But now they have risk. Yeah. Right. But I I think before you, before, again, uh, again, what I was saying was that it puts the House Democrats in in the position of of, of playing defense. They're they're the ones trying to preserve what already exists right now. Okay. So what you've got, what I would expect if, you know, and if... uh, Kind of shades of that that uh, that uh, real weird meeting at the White House last last week, but if I if I'm Nancy Pelosi, I'm I'm asking uh, I'm pointing to Mitch McConnell and saying you come up with a solution that's got sixty votes on it. Yeah, I mean and that's then, that's then we'll really talk. the point I was trying to make. It's Repu- yeah. the Republicans are going to struggle with this, aren't they? Uh, there's there's no doubt this isn't going to be tough. But we're also we also need to remember too that we're going to have a con- hotly contested Democratic primary. 
And so there's going to be a oh, lot yeah. of posturing oh, yeah. oh, in yeah. terms of presidential politics, and it's going to be very hard getting the Democrats. Yeah, I on think one that's page. probably true. You know what, um, Andy? I, the the twenty AGs that that filed this lawsuit. Um, you have to wonder if they woke up after the judge ruled and said to themselves, whoa, we were all trying to deal with one specific provision of ACA. Instead, this judge uh, took the ball and ran it over the goal line and ruled the entire act was unconstitutional. And so to an extent, I have to wonder, you know, Chris Carr said afterwards, this is a good thing because it does give us a chance to rewrite the law. Uh, but it does seem to me that maybe they got more than they bargained for. Well, I agree. I, I think that, uh, you know, when the Affordable Care Act came into being, think of how many hearings and how many months that it took for, for one, a single party, yes, to come up with a fix for something like preexisting conditions. Uh, and this pre-existing condition thing is not going to go away. And I think Republicans are going to be playing defense on that issue because re- Democratic challengers will say, well, look, look at the Republicans trying to take away your protections. The problem is you have to that's – a, that's a protection that you have to pay for uh, actuarially. An insurance company has to has to uh, figure pre-existing conditions into what it charges customers. Heath, you that's right. I've got two clients, or I guess I've got three or four clients who are all parties to this uh, lawsuit, and they did not build. I know why. Post November, there's this kind of quick view that the reason why Republicans lost the House is because of pre-existing conditions. No Republican political consultant really believes that, right? Uh, it, had, it really had nothing to do with the issues. It was all about the president of the United States and certain districts and everything else. We actually won more Senate seats, right, in actually more moderate states where if this issue were that global of a political problem. And so Chris Carr and the attorney general in Alabama and in Indiana and in Texas, they all woke up and went, this is actually what we asked for. There's a, there's a non-severability clause in the legislation that basically says if you find one part of it unconstitutional, the whole thing is unconstitutional. They knew that. Now, they do know that the onus is back on them to help be leaders in finding the solution. But if you ever said that you wanted something that if you said that a judge who found something that Donald Trump did unconstitutional and that you think that's the role of the judiciary, intellectually, you need to stand up and say, okay, well, this federal judge found something that President Obama did unconstitutional, and now let's go fix it. And that's the way our checks and balances are supposed Stacey, to work. Stacey, you want to weigh in? Well, I, I just think that it's hard to believe that anybody is really happy with this decision, Democrats and Republicans alike, because it, it calls the question at a very inconvenient time for everybody. And I'm not optimistic uh, that we're going to get a uh, solution that gives long-term stability to the American people anytime soon. And that's why I hope the states uh, take up that slack. But I hope that we also realize, I hope that Democrats realize that we're still in the driving seat on this because you got a long way to go before the Supreme Court can even Mm -hmm. consider this. And then I think it's a long shot that the Supreme Court is going to uphold this decision in full. And so the Democrats should remember that when they're at the bargaining table. This may I'm, not, I'm, I'm asking out of ignorance here, but what's, uh, what uh, court of appeals does this go to? It's the Fifth Circuit. Fifth. Circuit. It goes to the Fifth Circuit. It's a conservative court, mm-hmm. is what I'm told. All right, we got to get to a break. I do want to spend a couple That's more right. minutes on the other side of the break uh, exploring uh, something that, that you, Heath, and you, Stacey, have especially uh, referred to, and that's what will the how will the legislature move forward, and what can we do? Brian Kemp talks about waivers. He's talked about them through the uh, latter half of his general election campaign, but I don't know quite what that means, and I'd like to get all of you to help me understand it. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. You count on GPB to bring you reporting that helps you better understand our community and our world. And now, in these final days of 2018, we're especially counting on you. Listeners like you make the trusted, independent news coverage you depend on possible. As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. There's still time to make your tax-deductible year-end gift. Go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. Andy Miller, uh, and, and then I'll go to the political folks in the room as well. When we talk about Medicaid waivers, 
what sort of things, there's all sorts of waivers you could uh, look at, right? What do we imagine about Brian Kemp in this situation? Well, as you said, there are all types of waivers that, uh, that can states can come up with that would need federal approval. And these are kind of experiments, variations typically on the Medicaid program, but it also could be on the ACA. And they could range anywhere from uh, helping the health insurance exchanges with reinsurance, which would help the insurers. It could be something like the Georgia Chamber offered a couple of years ago, which looked a lot like Medicaid expansion, except they didn't call it that, and it had work requirements for the new beneficiaries. And it could be something like uh, Grady Health System has proposed, which would take a population in DeKalb and Fulton County that is uninsured and give them coverage, and Grady would manage their care along with the help of uh, community health centers. Heath, um, when you say the Trump administration is encouraging states as, uh, you know, as the laboratories for uh, many aspects of government, what do you think they want to see happen? I think that's exactly, I think, look, first of all, when we think about health care, right, we have to think about who the populations are. Georgia's population and demographics and our Healthcare challenges are different from California's population or New Mexico or New York, uh, and de- much different than Connecticut or some of these really small states with high income, you know, populations and education levels. So, what the Trump administration and what and what conservatives in general believe is that the federal, the states ought to be the kind of experiment, the sandboxes, where you try different solutions to it. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was a one size fits all across the United States of America. America, and it was basically designed by California, if you really get down to the policy of it. And it was designed for what would work in California, New York, and then forced on the rest of us. So hopefully what they're encouraging, both politically, but, but good policy makes good politics, is for the states to say, what does Georgia need that's different? And can you do it for a little bit less than what the, and remember, the Affordable Care Act was the Cadillac version. It, it required you to cover everything, basically, in the healthcare space. And there, there are different things that you don't need uh, in that bill. And you can pop, possibly do it for less than what it requires. Stacy, isn't the most fundamental premise, and Andy, I should probably get you in on this too, isn't the single most fundamental premise of the Affordable Care Act that your pool has to basically be as broad and wide as possible so that you can, in fact, have the resources to ensure the people who need coverage for the various conditions and diseases that they're dealing with. In other words, doesn't it have to be, to some extent, a one-size-fits-all plan, it, it, and that with maybe some modifications state by state? I'm not. It's an interesting thing to kind of think about. You absolutely need a big pool, and, and I'll just want to say one thing, following up on what Heath said. The ACA was based on a Republican idea. So I think the number one thing that has to happen if anything is going to come out of this uh, debate in Congress is that we've got to put politics aside and we've got to think, how are we going to get a health care plan that's going to help the most people? But absolutely, you can't cover pre-existing conditions for some of the sickest Americans if you don't include the young and healthy people. And the only way to do that is to have some kind of requirement that everybody have insurance. It just won't work otherwise. By the way, the states can require people to have insurance. It's the federal government that cannot. Jim, you uh, want to jump in? Yeah, I, I just uh, I want to ask, ask Keith. Okay, we, yeah. we we started this program with the, the notation that Lamar Alexander, one of the the fellows willing to compromise in the Senate, is not running for re-election. Uh, Isaacson will be in his seat in January. Is he going to take leadership on this issue? Well, you know, it's funny. We were uh, Senator Isaacs and I were discussing that this morning, right? There's a the the vacuum that has to be filled is uh, smart policy folks like Senator Isaacs and like Tom Price, like some of our friends on the Democratic side, the senator from Virginia who's a businessman who understands that the current bill wasn't working come up with solutions. I think the Senate is going to have to lead on this because if you can't get 60 votes in the Senate, which is 54, 54 Republicans, you got to have six Democrats. So there's going to have to be a bipartisan role there. You get something passed out of the Senate. Then the House and the Democratic leadership are going to have to deal with that, right, in some way. But yes, I think that the Senator Isaacsons uh, of the world are going to take a huge leadership role. But remember, Lamar Alexander's there for two more years, right? Mm-hmm. And he's going to, again, reach across 
come up with these solutions. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll answer one quick question. One great solution that Georgia could come forward with, the refundable tax credit, which is basically a subsidy to non-insured people, you don't have to make it mandatory. You just have to provide it for them the day they show up at the emergency room. And that's a unique way of saying you're immediately covering everybody who shows up uninsured. Mm-hmm. So there is a more affordable way to do this. And, and you're the, covering them where health care is the most expensive in the emergency room. I think we're going to have like, to take a more global approach that's going to encourage preventative care and not well, it's going to be accessible care. to them before they show up. But right now, people are not even signing up for ACA, and we're still not covering them. So we as Republicans can be smart and actually make sure everybody has something. This is going to be a big political lift uh, and, and a big idea lift, both on the state level and on the, on the federal congressional level. It's, it's, it's huge. And, and, and Heath, I think you're going to, okay, 54 Republicans in the Senate, Republican votes in the Senate. You're really going to have to come up with more, more than six Democrats, aren't you? Because oh, yeah. you're going to, you're going to have, you're going to have some defections on the Republican side, people who, who, who are, will, will simply vote no under any circumstance. I think that's, I think it's right. You definitely wouldn't target just six. <laughs> um, we have to remind people that um, when he talks about the California plan for health care, it was um, Mitt Romney as governor of Massachusetts who proposed a state plan uh, to that, that the ACA in many ways is modeled after Eric. Uh, but I, what I'm hearing from Heath is it's one thing to do it on a state level, another to do it nationally. Yeah. Is that the argument? But, but, but also Massachusetts is different than Georgia, just like well, California is right. different than Georgia. And, you know, speaking of Mitt Romney, He's now in the United States Senate, having served as a governor who worked together with Ted Kennedy, who was in the Senate at the time, and got a plan that was unique for Massachusetts. And so I think there's some leaders in the Senate. I think Heath is absolutely right. I think this is going to come from the U.S. Senate. All right. Um, we've going to watch how this unfolds in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, Andy, you're a little pessimistic. I am. I'm I'm not pessimistic about the court case. I think the Supreme Court and John Roberts, if it gets there, and it probably will, John Roberts cast the deciding vote in favor of the ACA uh, back in 2012. I feel pretty good that that's going to happen again. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on. And by the way, let's make sure people know they can follow this. Certainly, we'll be reporting on it at GPB News, and so will the AJC. But for real drill-down uh, coverage, you can go to georgiahealthnews.com, right? That's correct, and it's absolutely free. There you go. We like free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Jim Galloway. Uh, government going to shut down at the end of the week? The president, yesterday we had Steve Miller on the uh, Sunday shows saying we're going to do whatever it takes to get our $5 billion for the wall, even if that means shutting the government down. Well, if uh, it could be, but it's I, I, my bet is my bet is is that Senate Republicans are going to come up with a deal. There will be a deal struck with with the uh, on, with Democrats on it, and they will let, leave it to Donald Trump to say to be the one to say no. Stacey, um, will Democrats fight this tooth and nail all the way till the end of the week? Nobody wants a government shutdown. No one that's rational thinking. So I don't think Democrats are cheering for a shutdown. I think they will be willing participants in discussions to come up with a compromise to keep that from happening. Um, and if they don't, they know that they're going to lose electorally. And, and we had a similar situation a couple of years. I don't know if it was last year. It was sometime in the last year or so when, when there was a threat of a shutdown based on the Dreamers. And at first, the Democrats were holding strong and saying, we're going we're gonna to shut it down over this because the majority of Americans support the Dreamers. Well, that's true. The majority of Americans support the Dreamers, just like a majority of Americans want immigration reform, but not at the expense of their paychecks. And that's what the Democrats realized then. And I think that's probably what Donald Trump will have to realize this week. Everyone wants a Christmas holiday, and there'll be a lot of posturing all week. But at the end of the week, They'll come up with some compromise. So, uh, Heath, um, what's interesting about this is that the polling shows that a majority of people in almost every poll you look at this week, that the American people do not want a government shutdown over funding for the wall. But that said, 
Isn't there some particular urgency to President Trump's desire to get that money now, considering he will have a Democratic House to deal with after January 3rd, and suddenly his opportunity to go back to voters in 2020 and say, I got you the wall money that I've been looking for evaporates because the Democratic controlled how Democratic controlled House isn't going to pass this. You know, I don't want to ever be the person that tries to go inside the president's mind on his strategy when he when he had the press conference last week or moves forward on the wall. Uh, I do. I do think you're right. I mean, I think they know that they're not going to get it out of the Democratic House in, in 2019 or 2020. I think the question is, does he think that it's an effective uh, political tool in a in a partisan uh, general election yeah, to rally his base right? in 2020? You look at Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania and these states, it polls better than it does in New York or California. The other thing I find interesting this morning, I've, I've picked up that, and, and I don't know if it's been reported somewhere, but the Democrats have actually offered $1.3 billion. Right. Oh, sure. That's always been right, on the table. Yeah. You know, yeah. for, for what they call a fence, not a wall. But but the, the point is, is that uh, it is that the kind of trap. I agree with Eric at the end of the day. At the worst we're going to do is pass another two-month uh continuing resolution and get this punted into February. But uh, and, and there might be a 24-hour shutdown, but you start talking about messing with the FAA on Christmas travel. Um, the last time the Democrats got the blame for the shutdown, I don't think that would happen in this case, If uh, and that would be detrimental politically and, and, just if, to, and bad policy. And, and just to raise, raise a, a point, I cannot you, – you, you, y'all uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I can't remember – a time when Donald Trump actually pulled the trigger on a threat. No, but he may get a right. little bit more, and then he'll take it as a win. Yeah, yeah that's what he does, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we move from from 1.3 to 1.4, and, and he'll declare victory, and that's it. I don't know that he's going to want to do a continuing resolution to push it off into he should, two months that, when you have a Democratic House. Yeah. Well, that's the point. Yeah. This is his moment. It is his moment, Andy. If he doesn't get it now, he may have to. Yes, he can go to voters as he's out there campaigning in 2019 and 2020 and say, I need this wall. It was the Democrats who denied it. And if you don't go out there and vote for Republicans to take over all those seats in Congress so we get this wall. I mean, he can use that. Uh, Heath is right. But uh, better the wall than having to use that cudgel. I, you know, he's going to keep his 35 percent no matter what. But I, I can't believe that this wall issue means a whole lot to the majority of Americans. I just, no, I, 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 look, I, I just think this guy will declare declare victory over anything, anything that happens. He will declare victory and he will walk away from it. He could declare a victory over the 1.3, and it may be his only chance to get the 1.3. Yeah, so he may as well a little take bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, most Americans don't know he doesn't have the 1.3, so he, he can say whatever he wants to say. That's right. Stacey, it's interesting to look at all of this, whether it's the health care uh, problems that the Congress is now going to have to deal with, whether it's the potential for a government shutdown. It's interesting to put all of this through the lens of what happened right here in Georgia during the election and and how we saw metro suburbs up your way uh, go blue for the first time in many years. Uh, is what's happening right now uh, solidifying those voters who decided to go to the polls and vote Democratic? Well, I think if Trump and the Republicans decide to shut down the government over this border wall, it will only help Democrats in 2020, which is why I think it probably won't happen, because as crazy and self-destructive as it seems Trump is, the majorities or the, the Republicans in, in the Congress don't seem to be as self-destructive as the how, president. How will Georgians, if there is a shutdown, Jim, how will we feel it here in Georgia? Uh, well, number one, I will have to be writing checks to my uh, federal employee daughter up in D.C. <laughs> to pay for her rent. So, yeah. Yeah, that's how it is. Isn't, isn't there money for the storms that uh, in southwest Georgia? That's yeah, the Well, that's the next. Yes, yeah. you're right. That's right. the thing I wanted to get to right. next. Right now, there is money set to be distributed to Georgia for Hurricane Michael relief. And it is, Eric, you're exactly right. We don't know what's going to happen to it if they don't get a, a, a bill passed to keep the government going. Yeah, and I, that, that's why I think 
they're not going to shut down the government. Right. It's not just Georgia, too. It's yeah. Florida, right? right. And, yes. when you, and when you look at 2020, this is where the we're going to be like Florida for the next decade where our electoral votes are in play. So anybody's got to be looking to what, what's good for Georgia and Florida if they want to win the electoral votes in either state. So I think that's an additional political motivation. All right, let's do this. Let's get to another break. We'll watch. We'll know by Friday because that's the deadline for funding uh, the government. Um, We'll watch for that as the week unfolds. Let's take the break now. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about this strange, strange episode in the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina where Excuse me, there are allegations of fraud having uh, had a big impact on the outcome there. Uh, And we'll talk about a few other issues as Political Rewind continues. They say it takes 30 days to form a habit. Hi, I'm Ophira Eisenberg, and if your New Year's resolution is to be more informed, you don't need 30 days. Make a year-end gift right now, and you'll start a good habit immediately. And when you commit to monthly giving, you know you'll stick with it. It's a lot easier and less painful than going to the gym more. So get ahead on your goals. You just have to get behind us. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now. Go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. On the next Fresh Air, Frederick Douglass. We speak with historian David Blight, whose new biography of Douglass is on many best-of-the-year lists. Douglass's speeches about his escape from slavery and the abolition movement were so popular. Seeing and hearing Douglass became, through the course of the 19th century, a kind of American wonder of the world. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Want to keep our conversation going. Jim Galloway, Heath Garrett, Stacey Evans, Eric Tannenblatt, Andy Miller in the studio. Got a full house today. Uh, uh, Tom Faust and Robert Jimison have been following your comments on Facebook Live. And uh, they say you've got a lot to say about this. I don't get a chance to read them while I'm in here in the studio because I'm trying to listen to what our <laughs> panel has to say. But please keep the conversation going. It's terrific that you are so engaged. Uh, all right. Let me come to you, if I may, Heath Garrett, on this one. The Ninth District in North Carolina, and, and I want to relate this back to Georgia. Right. I don't just want to talk about North Carolina, although they are a neighbor to the Northeast. Um Mark Harris, the Republican, was uh, the presumptive victor in that race. He won by 905 votes. But as, as returns came in and as analysts looked at the data, they f- were very suspicious about two counties uh, and the vote totals there. One, because they showed a, a wildly different uh Uh, outcome between absentee votes, early voting, and the votes on election day, and uh, and two, uh, because there were an awful lot of absentee ballots that never got turned in at all. It led to uh, the state refusing to certify the election and now concerns that the consultant who Mark Harris now says, yes, I hired, may have in fact fraudulently altered the returns of the race. No, that's exactly right. And it's important because what we're talking about are absentee ballots or mail-in ballots. And political campaigns on both sides uh, can hire operatives whose job it is to go out and get people registered to vote and then follow up and make sure that they get the absentee ballot or the mail-in ballot and then go so far as to knock on their door or show up in the nursing home and get them to fill the ballot out and get it returned, right? And this is where the potential for fraud comes in on both sides. I think this is an interesting case for Georgia because we just had a big discussion about all of this. You have a Republican uh, candidate who used Republican operatives to engage in what is alleged to be fraud with signatures on mail-in ballots and fraudulently collecting these or suppressing them somewhere else. And you have the Democrats in North Carolina saying, hey, we need more security around absentee ballot and mail-in ballots because it's the place where there's most rife for uh, fraud and for paid consultants who get paid by the vote that they turn in. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's interesting that, I mean, I mean, uh, Georgia has been debating uh, 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 voter security since 2007 with voter ID laws. And 
historically, Republicans have dominated absentee voting. And that's the one area that, that our law really doesn't touch that, that much. Well, and that's exactly what the issue has become, Stacey. Uh, th- this raises questions. What, what the accusation here is, is that this consultant, uh, Leslie Dowless, I believe his name is, may have been essentially harvesting absentee votes, going to people's homes and saying, oh, have you filled out your absentee ballot? Let me collect it, please, on your behalf, uh, which is one of the things that's being investigated and one of the reasons the state's unwilling right now to certify. But it does raise these enormous questions. We hear all the time on this show from from listeners who say, why don't you make it easier for me to vote? Let me mail in my ballot. Suddenly, issue, things like this make you realize that there are significant voter security issues mm-hmm. when you have mail-in ballots. Absolutely. Well, in this singular incident, you have a bad actor, it sounds like, this campaign, this candidate. And he even had alarm bells rung for him after the primary that, that this had happened, and he didn't look into it. So it sort of makes you wonder— He knew maybe he knew it was going on. So here's a bad actor. This hopefully doesn't encourage more bad actors because they think, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that for my next campaign. But I've personally always been skeptical of mail-in ballots. And it it arises from my first race Um, back in 2010. I won the in-person vote two-thirds. My opponent got one-third. The mail-in ballots were exactly the opposite. Now, I won, so I didn't take the time to go down and challenge it. But I always thought that seems odd to me. The other thing, the other thing that that North Carolina kind of raises, Bill, is 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 like Georgia, North Carolina, and, and so many other states. North Carolina is a state on the cusp. It is is it is it is in that that purple stage where it could swing either way, and as we've seen, it raises a the important question of how do the victors behave and how to do the defeated behave. Uh, I mean, we've seen this happen. We, we saw we've seen this happen in Michigan, Wisconsin. We've seen something going on in North Carolina, you know. And and if you're living in Georgia, you have to start wondering. Okay, when the switch happens, if it happens, how will we react? Yeah, we we're talking. You're talking now about particularly Wisconsin and Michigan, where Democrats won the governor's seats in both states, and the Republican-controlled legislatures have since been moving to try to take uh, power away from the governor's office, um, which is exactly what happened in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina was the pioneer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Eric, you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I think the, the, that I, I believe that there's calls on both sides for a, for a do-over. Yes, that's exactly and, right. Thank yeah, you for and, pointing and, that yeah, out. And, and, and I think that in some ways you, you sort of have to do that for legitimacy purposes, because even if the Republican comes out on top, it, there's always going to be questions. Even Mark Harris has said, right. if it appears fraud is has uh, taken place here, I want a re-election. And, and, would, and, you, and also, would you have a do-over for the primary as well? Because the same questions came up in the Republican primary. Yeah, there are those who say you you've got to go. What you've got to wind it all back, the way back. Right. right. And, and here's the question: Is is if they don't? I mean, uh, are House Democrats who are going to be ruling Congress, uh, ruling the U.S. House, will they seat this fellow? And right. that is one of the things that's fascinating about this because it brings to light a, uh, a rule that many people aren't even aware mm-hmm. of. Uh, the House, or the Senate for that matter, in this case it's in the House, they have the ability to seat the person that they want to seat regardless of the outcome of an election. It doesn't happen. Anybody know the last time it happened uh, in the U.S. House? The only, uh, the, only, the only thing I can remember is in the state house. It happened to Julian Bond. It <laughs> did happen to Julian Bond in the state house. Frank McCloskey, okay, was mm-hmm. seated uh, in, by a Democratic. He was a Democrat. He was seated. Uh, he was in Indiana. Where was McCloskey so. from? Uh, he was seated after because the election outcome was like three or four Illinois, votes. Maybe uh, may have been. I, I don't have that information. Maybe somebody out there knows. Um, and the House, even though he lost the election by a, by a few votes decided to seat him. And Buddy Darden is the one who reminded us of this because he was part of, a, of, an, mm-hmm. of an election in which they did, while he was a member of the House, uh, deal with that. If I remember correctly, this was much more common hundreds of years yes, ago. Yeah, that's years, exactly yeah. right. That is exactly right. And by the way, Tom Faust says, yes, McCloskey was uh, from Indiana. Um, so it's a fascinating 
uh, story. Uh, I think, uh, Andy, I cut you off as you were trying to say something about that North Carolina situation. No, I, I, I just think it, 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 it's so narrow of a vote that I, I think they have to do something in terms of like a do-over. Well, we'll see how that plays out, but it also is instructive as we figure out we're going to be do, spending a lot of time, Jim, in the legislature looking at issues around voting, the best way to vote. Uh, this will uh, uh, help inform that conversation. Yeah, exact match and and uh, and uh, uh, voter uh, voter uh, uh, ousters. Okay. Well, and remember, Bill, there are a couple of investigations still going on in the state of Georgia about these types of consultants and voter registration. Uh, they were out there where there apparently were some fraudulent uh, registrations out there, and those investigations have not come to conclusion here. You're, well, you're talking about Stacey Abrams' organization. nonprofit organization. And I was not aware that those were still outstanding. Well, it, uh, it, it, uh, an investigation is an investigation until somebody says it's not. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, we're almost out of time. Anybody, uh, this is a toss-up question. Who was the who, Google just released its list of the most uh, 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 Googled search words in uh, 2018? Who was the most Googled politician in the United States? Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams was. Isn't that interesting, Jim? Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. It it it, it kind of it kind of shows uh, shows uh, why she may be sticking around. She may, she may be in Iowa. <laughs> with 51 others. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams was the top trending politician in searches in 2018. The year in search results show that Abrams beat out a host of other politicians, including Beto O'Rourke, Ted Cruz, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio, uh, I, I just realized that we should have been more gentle with you sitting here, Stacey Evans. I hope you're all right. Hey, a Stacey from Georgia getting Googled? That's great. That's okay. great. Good, good. Uh, we don't have time to get into it now, but this does lead us back to this conversation, which we're certain to have repeatedly in the months ahead. At what point does Stacey Abrams... Heath, I want to ask you as a mm -hmm. Republican, if, if you're a good party person, and we presume that Stacey Abrams is, how long can she keep people hanging before she declares whether she's a candidate in 2020 or 2022? In the modern era, it's got to be sooner rather than later, right? If the Democrats are serious about challenging David Perdue, who's going to be a strong candidate, but we are, we do have some demographic challenges uh, politically, um, she needs to either, you know, make a declaration or get out of the way so that the Democrats can have their... Uh, raise the money and do the things they've got to do. Cannonblatt is nodding. You agree, Stacey Evans? I was thinking that certainly we can give her a Christmas break. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I know that. But, she, but, but not much longer. You've got Teresa Tomlinson. <laughs> you've got Raphael Warnock. You've got any number of other people who really are thinking seriously about getting about in Michelle the Michelle well, I hadn't heard her name yeah. introduced. Thank but you th for doing that. There are certainly a lot of people that are looking and, and are waiting because it would— certainly behoove us, I think, to put our strongest foot forward. And, and if we can clear the field, let's clear it. Unless right. you want to announce here today and break some news. I'm good. I'm okay. good. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> I will say we, we're completely out of time. But Stacey Evans, one of the most gracious uh, concessions uh, in politics that I can think of in recent years, in which we're really uh, delighted you're a part of this show now. So thank you. Thank you. All right, Andy Miller, Eric Tannenblatt, Stacey Evans, uh, Heath Garrett, and Jim Galloway, thank you for being with us today. We're back tomorrow. We're going to be talking to uh, CNN's former senior political analyst, Bill Schneider. See you then. I'll be back. <laughs>